Welcome to Eco Futures. Your episode today will include Michael Murray from Social Habitat Housing. We'll be speaking to Michael about this latest development in the Mullum Stewart Street uh, area that has some free land. Some people are quite disturbed about this development application, other people are happy about it. We're going to listen to Social Habitat Housing's Michael Murray, who's supporting affordable housing development in the Byron Shire. There's Lot 22 at Mullumbimby, behind the community gardens. Firstly, please tell us a little bit about Social Habitat Housing and what you're trying to achieve. Yes, uh, Social Habitat Housing is a not-for-profit Uh, and it's about five or six uh, locals, long-term locals who are volunteering, who have seen the need over the years for some kind of uh, innovative or alternative uh, accessible, equitable housing to be happening in the Shire. So uh, we knew that the council had this land, uh, council-owned land, south of Mullumbimby Township, and because we, a lot of us have worked in uh, property and design and planning, we put together a proposal to council. They thought it had merit, and they uh, picked it up and have the proposal now in process to have the land rezoned. Social habitat housing essentially is what's called social enterprise. It's a not-for-profit, community-driven venture. Could you please just explain to us what social enterprise is? Well, it's uh, part of a whole global movement really that business can work for the good of local communities and not against it and there's a few areas in that uh, there's a whole movement around social impact investing where people are uh, making investment into not-for-profit and community ventures specifically with Byron Council are uh, also Uh, developing a PPP model which is private-public partnership. Funnily enough, Ballina Shire has had a long history of PPP ventures and Ballina Shire is very well off and affluent uh, Shire because they've been able to adapt and innovate a lot of their own public assets into money-making ventures for their community. We here in Byron Shire are very adverse or tentative around this model for obvious reasons. We've had a long history of being very uh, guarded around any form of development, especially development that um, involves council or public land. When we're talking about this model, let's look at a little bit of the detail. It's an affordable housing development that you're promoting. Just explain to us the details. Like, you know, how does it actually operate? Do people yes. have a, a lease? Do they own the home? Mm. Are there renting options? All of that. So basically the model is that it's council-owned land and it will always remain council-owned land in perpetuity. And then what will happen is that it comes from a model that's currently called manufactured home estate, land lease community. So the land is owned by the public entity in this case Byron Council, and people will be able to go and buy buy their demountable home or their manufactured home or even build from scratch, but it has to be within certain parameters, it, it has to be off the ground, it has to be demountable, and they will be able to own that land and they will pay a land lease to Byron Council, who are, are the landowner. So you have dominion over your house, you own your property, but you pay a land lease to Uh, to the council and why this is an advantage is that this will maintain ownership of the land, it will not be sold to an independent developer and it will provide income, much needed income 
to uh, Byron Shire Council and renters or property owners will have dominion and long-term lease. They will have like a 20, 25-year lease over their actual structure, whether it's a tiny home or a manufactured home. And people can actually transfer the title and inherit the title as well? Yes, people can sell on the title. It's not actually a freehold title like uh, you would have a normal house, but they can transfer it on to heirs or, or sell it. But of course, there will be limitations on, there will be a, this will not go into investment property cycle. There will be limits on capital gain. You said there's already a statutory structure for this type of housing. So we talk about holiday parks, people have relocatable homes. It's similar to that model? Aged care facilities have the same model uh, where you own your actual house, usually around 80 to 120 square metres, and you own the house and you pay a lease to the body corporate. If it goes ahead, you know, buildings are placed onto the property, people move in, who's actually managing the lot? That will just be standard real estate agent, property management company, yet to be decided. Uh, so it's, it's leased and, and managed and, and re- rented by in the normal property management cycle. The limiting on the profit-making model, the limiting on renting, is that within the, the title structure? Yes, uh, there'll be covenants and contracts. Uh, everybody who buys onto the land will, will be within these certain parameters of what's allowed and what's not allowed. That, of course, is yet to be determined and, uh, and written up. And that's a very important part of it because you're saying this is not a profit-making model, it's a community housing it's to allay people's fears because there has been resistance to Lot 22, there has been some objections. I think it's important that people know it's an alternative model, it's an alternative form of housing. Can you give us an example of some other sites that have already been set up under this model that are operating successfully? Gosford Council have over 40 affordable housing proposals, as has uh, Grafton and Gosford Council have. In Victoria, is way ahead of the... Um, there's many models happening at the moment, and most notable is the Nightingale model, which is basically you're taking the profit. Usually the model is that a developer comes in and buys land and builds a unit, captures a profit at the end of the day. By removing a developer from this proposal, you are keeping the development affordable and the only people who are making a profit at the end of the day after all costs and infrastructure costs are developed are the council because they will maintain ownership of the land the land lease in time so instead of council selling this land off to a developer they're able to maintain the land provide affordable housing and recoup a land lease income from the land when you go in contract you're going into a contract with byron council for a land lease? If Byron Council or a third party entity that arm's length with Council who will be the property management company? Byron Council owns the land but they may transfer the management to like you said perhaps real estate or private entities? Yes, who will do, do, take a management fee of course the usual percentage is seven or eight percent just the standard model. So we've had some opposition people may fear the rezoning of the land they may fear that later on there could be changes and that it might go into the hands of developers? Have you got anything to say about that? Yeah, look, that's understandable and a few people who have been supportive of Lot 22 are very distrustful of Byron Council because of the history of what happened with the Roundhouse site and I can understand that that hesitation and concern which is what's going to happen is once this land is rezoned it turns out from, you know, relatively 
low-cost land into a multi-million dollar piece of land. So the temptation for any council to sell that off and make a few quick bucks is of course tempting, but I don't think that we can't let that happen as a community. We've got to try something a bit different and a bit innovative in the middle here, because the Roundhouse site, uh, you know, a few people who were supportive of, of Lot 22 said, well, no, what happens if council rezone it and then sell it? So that is a concern. We've just got to keep council foot on the right uh, structure here and make it uh, see it through to the end. And as we were saying, it's very important to understand that people, it's a land lease title, there are covenants on it, those covenants and those uh, land lease titles are registered with the lands office. It should remain in perpetuity. Yeah, once the whole process is, is done and it's rezoned and then many, many steps for council still to go through to fulfil that, it's still step in, in stage one, which is in the rezoning phase, then it has to go through state. But one of the main processes is what's happening now is the community consultation on this and hopefully making sure that as many in the community as possible understand actually what's going on and it's not a standard development. And do you think that it'll be going ahead in the near future, Michael? It has to gain the uh, approval of the majority of the community. I think there's a lot of support in the community for it already. But also the main stumbling block, which uh, everybody's aware of, is that it's flood. It's in the 100-year flood zone land and so that's a major uh, hurdle that has to be overcome. There are ways where uh, flood-prone land can be land remediation and made uh, rectified and it will not be a problem. There's even some uh, flood experts are saying what, why Mullumbimby floods a lot is a lot of those the silting up in the creek, Saltwater Creek, and into the river is so flooded up that once we're able to remediate this land, it will actually help long-term with the flooding of Mullumbimby Town as well. You're with Eco Futures, and thank you to Michael Murray from Social Habitat Housing explaining the advantage of putting little homes and relocatable affordable homes on Lot 22 in Mullumbimby. We'll be back with some more comment next week for those that are actually against that idea and against putting any development into that area in Mullumbimby. So next on Eco Futures, we have... Caitlin Weatherstone from Wild Search Australia. She's an ecologist that runs some programs for women called Rewilding Women, bringing women back into the wild, reconnecting with their bodies, reconnecting with nature and helping our overall well-being. So here she is now. So I, I grew up in the Northern Rivers, um, this beautiful place that we call home, and then I moved to Queensland to, to study all about wildlife and conservation and the environment. And then um, I started Wild Search kind of as a platform to showcase my nature adventures and my photography and a bit about conservation and some of the work I was doing with threatened species in far north Queensland and New South Wales. And um, yeah, it's been this really amazing journey in building a community and it is hard in the environmental world <laughs> to um, find jobs. Um, but really what I, what I thought was it was all about connecting people back to nature. So that's really what I try and do now. Great. And so what are some of the projects you've worked on in conservation? Could you give us an example? Yeah. Um, as a contract ecologist, um, I got to do all sorts of really fun and exciting um, projects. I got to go to places that most people never, you know, can never get to. Um, we were helicoptered into the Upper Daintree with WWF Australia, which is an amazing um, one of Australia's largest conservation organisations. And we were looking for the Northern Betong, it's a beautiful little marsupial that's endangered. 
and it only lives in far north Queensland. Um, another job recently, I was looking for the northern quoll, which is a cute little furry uh, marsupial. Again, I think I have a thing for marsupials. They are very, um, very. They are very cute, and and yeah, obviously in need of. They're all in need of assistance because I guess they're critically endangered. Are they many of these marsupials? Yeah, and you know, locally, um, I was involved um, in a lot of koala surveys um, around the Byron Shire and the Tweed and Richmond looking at our the issues we have with um with koala management or people management really um trying to stop koalas you know being hit on the roads um being attacked by dogs which are their main the main reasons we see them and of course disease is a big reason as well and i guess in your work you're going out and surveying counting animals looking at evidence of animals and the loss of their habitat yeah so depending on the survey you know we might do a camera survey so a lot of my work recently last year was um, taking in hundreds of cameras, these um, awesome little sensor cameras, and we put a piece of um, bait, so it might be a peanut butter ball, which the betongs really like, or it might be something like a chicken neck, which the quolls really like, and we put bait at these sensor cameras, and we distribute them all out throughout the bush. We have to get you know, helicoptered into remote areas, four-wheel driving into remote areas to get to these places. And then we basically wait for four weeks and we come back to the cameras and then we see if we've got any animals that have come to the camera. Wonderful. That's really great work. And another um, avenue of your work is you've got, you've got a, a sort of a community arm of your work as well, which sounds amazing. So you're promoting women to connect to nature and their bodies, rewilding women, um, and you've got some workshops in Byron. So please tell us a little bit about rewilding women and your workshop you've got coming up on the 9th of March. Yeah, um, rewilding women is something I'm really, really passionate about. You know, we can we can go out there and we can do all the science and we can, you know, do all the research about all these things and come back to governments and, you know, then they just kind of turn up their nose and they, they don't give you any funding. And you just think, how do you make people care? Um, it's really tricky. And the one thing I thought, well, no one's going to want to protect nature or this precious wildlife if they don't know about them or love them or... Um, you know, get to see them. So I try and show people nature and get them to really fall in love with it because you're not going to want to protect anything that you don't love. So um, I, I started a group called Rewilding Women and we, we used to meet once a week and it was this beautiful connection where we'd, um, do, we'd sit in nature somewhere, we might do weaving, we might talk about an issue, um, we might make natural products. And that's basically developed into this thing now where I'm so many women are reaching out and saying, oh, I want to be in nature. I want to have this connection. How can I be involved? Um, so I've developed a, a workshop program for this year, which I'm really excited about and hoping to do a lot more events. Um, and I invite, um, yeah, women to come and learn about tools for nature connection. Um, the workshop I have coming up in on the 9th of March in Byron Bay is how to make your own body products from scratch. There's so many women now that they don't want to buy, you know, the plastic wrapped chemically stuff in the shops. They want to know how to make it themselves. That's so it's right. A tool. Yes. Yeah, it's an amazing tool to connect. With and that's connecting you with nature in itself if you're using natural products and such. Yeah, I really think so. I think it's definitely a gateway, you know, for for deeper thought around the issue of sustainability and the environment and, and our connection to nature because, you know, we are human animals. We're animals. We're, we're supposed to be in nature. 
That's right. And I think they say, you know, when people like even children, when they're not brought up with nature and they're not brought up in the bush or they're they're not brought up connected to plants and animals and habitat and such, you know, they just don't have that connection and understanding and, and, you know, then they won't have the consciousness. So it's about raising consciousness, isn't it? Yeah, it's really quite sad. And, you know, there's been a lot of studies done that have linked a lack of nature with, you know, anxiety in children and mental health issues, physical problems as well, physical health problems. Um, so quite often you find that when you do connect with nature, even if it is, you know, every day you just go for a little walk or sit on your on your porch and watch the birds, um, any of these things, you know, they can help um, with mental health issues. They can help, um, you know, your immune system. Um, it's, yeah, been scientifically proven now, but it's stuff that we kind of like, oh, duh, you know. You always feel better when you, you know, go for a bushwalk or you go for a swim at the beach. But, um, yeah, it's actually scientifically known now. That's right, reconnecting, isn't it, with our roots. So, Caitlin Weatherstone, that sounds a, a really interesting project, and thank you so much. So, Wild Search, and you have your other arm of your organisation, Rewilding Women. They have there's the workshop in Byron on the 9th of March. Where's the workshop being held, and how can we contact you? Yeah, so um, I've got an Instagram and, and a website as well. It's being held at the Corner Palm, um, which is an industrial estate. You need to um, buy a ticket on the website. But you definitely keep um, an eye out for more events, um, free events, as well as some ticketed events that are coming up over the next year. And is this wildsearch.com? Where can we find you? Wildsearch.com.au? 